The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is Dan Wolkin from USA Today. We will talk a little bit about the hot seat watch. We're at the time of the year when we start focusing on what coaches could be going and what coaches could be changing jobs. We'll talk to Dan a little bit about where the hottest seats are and who could be making some moves in the upcoming month. We'll also hit on Urban Meyer and Ohio State, what went wrong there. We'll talk college football playoff and where things could get weird down the stretch of the season. And we'll give a glance ahead to this week's big game, Georgia and Florida, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party in Jacksonville. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. We are happy to be working with those fine folks. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe. And if so inclined, give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org where you can read all of our coverage. And away we go. Joining me this week is Dan Walken from USA Today. And Dan, we're reached the point in the season where, you know, actually it's been kind of quiet on the hot seat watch. Um, it, there hasn't been you know, a lot of talks and some jobs opening up in the ACC. But I wanted to start there. Because it, it has the potential to be sort of a quiet, silly season. What's your read on that as you start talking to people in the industry? Yeah, certainly that's been the assumption is that there's just not going to be a whole lot of high-level jobs opening this year because you've had so much turnover in the past few cycles and the buyouts have gotten so big, the commitments made to these coaches that were hired in the last three to four years that it's really financially difficult, uh, maybe even prohibitive, for some of these schools to try to make changes. Um, And it's just irresponsible on some level. For instance, if Gus Malzahn, who uh, just signed a new contract last year, is owed uh, about $38 million when you include assistance, you include hiring a new coach, you're talking about a 45 to 50 million dollar proposition to change coaches for Auburn. I mean, I'm sorry, like that's just not going to work. So you've got a few schools that I think are really considering making changes, really trying to figure out if financially it makes sense. Who, but it's who are not those? Going to be the kind of movement that we've seen. Well, I think North Carolina is the one a lot of people are talking about. Yeah, it's about uh, 10 million, right. 10 or 11 million for Fedora, maybe 12. Yeah, I think it's it may be a little bit more than that. Um, I, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but there's no doubt. I mean, it's it's double digits in the millions, and that's a lot. Uh, you know, but North Carolina does have resources, and I do think that when you start to consider empty seats, uh, possible season ticket holders not renewing, that type of thing, that can change the equation. Uh, I think Georgia Tech, depending on how they finish, is certainly going to have to take a look at it. Paul Johnson's actually one of the – coaches who's not owed a ton of money. Uh, he's, a, uh, I think, a $4 million buyout paid mm-hmm. out in annual installments, so that's very doable for Georgia Tech. Um, you know, and really, if you look around the country, I mean, people have talked about USC. Clay Helton certainly didn't help his case uh, last weekend, but again, I mean, a huge buyout, and I think that's a situation more likely to be 
staff changes rather than the head coach. So in terms of just the high-profile ones, you know, Kansas has obviously been talked about for, for a long time. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're really not looking at, at any in the SEC. Um, you know, the Big Ten, Rutgers is one that, that obviously uh, that just hasn't gone well. Um, you know, some people have speculated, is Mark D'Antonio just going to up and leave uh, or retire? I don't necessarily see that. But, uh, again, you're going to need some type of, of trigger point, some unexpected job opening to really start the, the dominoes. Um, and we haven't even mentioned Louisville. That's another one where right. uh, Bobby Petrino and $14 kind of, million there. Yeah, so I think that's the lay of the land. Yeah, I would imagine it seems to me North Carolina and Louisville, well, Kansas is, it seems like a foregone conclusion. North Carolina and Louisville seem probably more likely than not. You know, that you talk about the unexpected trigger point. One of the things I've heard from talking to people is this idea that the NFL might be back in the market for some college coaches. And again, the name that I keep hearing is Lincoln Riley. Now, that would be a huge deal, but also something that could maybe happen after the playoffs. So not only would that be highly unexpected, but it would also come at a time where it would be volatile within a cycle because it's unlikely that an NFL team is going to hire anybody until January. Um, again, not necessarily specific to Riley. I don't know if that's actually going to happen. Again, that's just been a name that's been sort of floated out there. But are you hearing anything about maybe the NFL's appetite for college coaches? Well, I think broadly you can look at how the NFL style of play is evolving right. mm-hmm. more toward college concepts. Uh, you can also look at, at, frankly, quarterbacks. And I think the trend toward playing younger quarterbacks is, is pretty pronounced. And so uh, the success of, of guys like Patrick Mahomes, for instance, um, you know, it, it makes, I think, NFL franchises look at it and say, you know, you draft a quarterback early, uh, they're under control from a salary standpoint. If you can get, you know, a quarterback to really produce early in a contract at a, at a low salary cap number, that that could actually really have a huge impact on, on, on your team's success and ability to sign free agents. And younger quarterbacks sometimes require, you know, a more simplified offense and, and a lot of things that have been done at the college level. So I think broadly that is true specifically in terms of who that might impact. Uh, I, I don't know that there's really anybody out there who is um, you know, truly on the radar or truly likely to move. Lincoln right. Riley's definitely a name that, that you hear and that's out there, but Lincoln Riley's got probably one of the top five jobs in college football or top ten jobs in college football, uh, and he's – what is he, 38 or 39? Oh, I think he's um, younger than that. No, Lincoln's probably like 36, I think. Yeah, right. So I'm not totally sure that you just want to, you know, give up one of the one of the real true Cadillac jobs in college football um, to go try the NFL when you're 36 years old. Yeah, 35, actually. 35 yeah. on, in September, on September 5th. Let me loop back around to Louisville and Petrino. And the only reason why is because – you know, Louisville fans are sort of in a position where, like Nebraska fans were last year, they're looking longingly up to Purdue and like, wow, that guy, he's from here, not just played here, but literally from here. You know, if we're going to spend all this money to get rid of Petrino, maybe now's the time to do it because look at what that guy's doing at Purdue. I don't know if I necessarily would equate 
the Frost Nebraska relationship with Louisville and Brom. Now, maybe so. I don't. I don't know Jeff Brom well enough to know if he longs for Louisville the way sort of Frost had like an emotional attachment to Nebraska. Very different programs with different ceilings. Um, but what do you think of, of the idea of possibly Louisville making a move because it thinks it has this guy waiting for them? Yeah, I think that's a possibility and something that is certainly worthy of conversation. But one thing that isn't getting talked about in that, and I, I do sort of question, is is Louisville really that much better of a job than Purdue? Uh, like, I don't know that it is. I'm I'm with you a hundred percent on that, and I think that's part of the calculation. It's one thing to be at UCF and say, "Okay, I'm going to go to Nebraska," but to be at Purdue and say, "Okay, I'll take Louisville." Like, unless the tug towards home is so powerful, those jobs are not that dissimilar. I mean, you know, in Louisville, you're basically signing up for butting heads with Florida State and Clemson every year. While at Purdue, you can say, "Well, it's only Purdue, and what's the history there?" But you know. I got Wisconsin. I got a rebuilding Nebraska. Like if I do things right at Purdue, like I can, I can manage a pretty nice life for myself. Yeah, and also I, I think if you're Jeff Brom, you also have to consider the possibility that Purdue's a good place to wait yes. for an Ohio State or a Notre Dame mm-hmm. or a USC. So, right. I mean, though he doesn't, he doesn't fit the USC profile, but at some point you think USC will actually hire a real football coach. Yeah, I mean, it's, right. There, there's a a group of jobs out there that Jeff Brom, you know, another year or two could open up and he would be right in, in the mix. Um, and obviously there's going to be some high level SEC jobs that come open in, in, you know, three years because they always do uh, at some point. So I, I don't know if I'm Jeff Brom that I just am like in a hurry to go to Louisville uh, attachments to the city, notwithstanding. Okay, let me throw a couple of more sort of a lower level and more attached to Kansas. I, I know that there are people at uh, places who have coaches who run option who are a little worried these days that Kansas might go that route. You know, you've got Numatololo at Navy and you've got Monken at Army. And there's this, you know, again, this is very speculative, but it's also this idea of like, well, if Kansas is going to do something different, why wouldn't it look in that direction? You've got two guys who have been very successful you have any feel for what Kansas and Jeff Long might do? That doesn't seem like a Jeff Long move, but do you have any feel for that? No, I, I really don't. Um, but again, it, it, it's one of those situations because the carousel is seemingly going to be so slow that it's a really good year for Kansas or for maybe a Georgia Tech to go look for coaches because people who might otherwise not be interested in your job could theoretically have some interest just based on the fact that there's not much movement. Like I I do think Kansas could maybe have a little bit better pool than what you would think. But again, it depends on how much money they want to spend and it depends on what direction stylistically they want to go. I give, if that's what they want to do and, and just go option and be different. And I certainly can make a case for and against doing that. uh, Then that's going to certainly bring, a different group in, in play. So um, I haven't totally got a feel for, for what they want to do or what Jeff's thinking about, uh, but uh, I, I just think there's a lot of options for them. You mentioned the timing, and it. it's such a huge part of this thing. I mean, it, listen, to a certain degree, it's one of the reasons why Jeff Brom is at Purdue. Brom was sort of understood it was probably time for him to go from Western Kentucky, and that the year that he decided it was time to go, 
there were not a ton of great jobs opening up or really prime jobs. And, and, you know, I think a lot of uh, power five schools are a little more reluctant to dip into the group of five these days. So Purdue got themselves a great coach. And I think Baylor did really well with Matt rule sort of because of timing, not necessarily because uh, Baylor was such a great job, but because they had the opportunity to get this guy who was looking to move and timing is such a major factor in who ends up where that gets very much underrated by fans who think you can just sort of snap your fingers and, and, and lure anybody you want to your job. Yeah. Look, hiring coaches is extremely difficult and the process is so layered. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of times there's search firm involvement. A lot of times, you know, an AD may really like somebody, but the president isn't comfortable with it. Uh, there's so much more, I think, attention now to what's going on off the field. And you've got to really dig deep into the background of some of these people you know, to say, is there anything that could come up in the past that could cause us problems? Um, so there's no doubt. I mean, a lot of times people just enjoy kind of moving the pieces on the chessboard and the media is no different. Like we do that all the time, just as much as fans. But I, I think in real life, it, it just gets really complicated. Not everything's a fit. And then the other element to it that, that really makes it difficult is the fact that coordinators at, at the top programs make so much money. Uh, a Brent Venables, for instance, at, at uh, Clemson, that you just can't realistically get somebody to all but maybe, you know, 30 or less Power 5 jobs. So it's, a, it's just a different environment hiring now than it was, you know, five, ten years ago. Hey, and I'm not. I don't want to lead into segue into Urban Meyer with the idea that he's going somewhere. You know, again, we're looking for a sort of maybe the piece that would be surprising. But I did want to talk about Ohio State before we take a break because of what just happened this weekend. And it's so easy, I think, to jump to the conclusion now that because of the scandal, Ohio State's issues are in some ways related. I don't really buy that. I think that's retrofitting the scandal to match the results. I do wonder if. What happened before the season does change Urban's perspective of his future at Ohio State. And I also do wonder if there is something, maybe not necessarily related to the scandal, but there's something that sort of keeps happening at Ohio State with these blowout losses. There's been three of them. Is that a trend? You know, not statistically, but I do wonder if there's something in the way Urban is managing things there at Ohio State that is lending itself to these massive collapses once a, once a year. It's been talked about by a bunch of people that Urban on the sideline is not exactly a picture of calm. He certainly uh, doesn't look great. He doesn't doesn't look great, even in the games that they've won. He, you know, he, he's just a bundle of of stress and negative energy and you know, stomping down the sidelines and, you know, freaking out about every play. And uh, it, it's not sort of the even keel emotional response that that you see from, you know, from most coaches. Uh, you know, obviously a Nick Saban or a Dabo or whatever, like they can get mad about certain things. But, you know, but generally speaking, it's, it's, it's a fairly positive, uh, you know, sort of body language. Uh, but Urban is is not right now, and and maybe that's it. And you know maybe it's there's something in the locker room, lack of leadership that that can you know kind of rally the the troops when when things get tough. But uh, I, I'm I'm not surprised, you know, at this point. Like their defense is not particularly great, uh, and the other thing that they are now, just from a football stylistic standpoint 
is they're a finesse team. Uh, I mean, when they won the championship in 2014, everybody talked about Cardell Jones and you know how they were throwing the deep ball, but but really that that run was built on just how dominant their offensive line was at the end of the season. They were mauling people up front, you know, creating these huge holes for Ezekiel Elliott, uh, and that was the foundation of, of how they won those those games against Alabama and Oregon uh, in the playoff. And now, I mean, everything is perimeter. It's finesse. Um, they don't really have a gear where they can just put their head down and, and, and create space inside. And, and I think that's the problem because it – the margin for error just gets so much smaller when you're a finesse team like that. And, and they got off track against Purdue and then it's just, you know, they, they have no way to write the ship. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I know the defensive problems have gotten a lot of attention, but to me, I think what you landed on this problem, maybe being able to run the ball, because I think really good teams, when they find themselves having an issue stopping another team, and you know, Purdue's got a neat offense, and they've got some talent there, and, and they've got a creative coach, and clearly Ohio State's having some back seven issues, but a lot of times you can overcome that by just saying, listen, man, like we're just going to run over you. Uh, because we got better guys up front and we got better backs and we can t- sort of take control. Listen, if Ohio State co- scores in the red zone, all the stuff that Purdue, uh, no, uh, everything that Purdue did, and no matter how much Purdue put stress on that defense, if Ohio State scores in the red zone, they still might survive that game. So I'm with you on the idea that Ohio State's bigger issue might be that, the offensive side of the ball in some ways, than on the defensive side where they sort of got exposed by Purdue. All right, listen, let me, let me take a quick break here, and we'll be back in uh, just a couple of seconds with uh, Dan Wolkin from USA Today. And we're back. I'm Ralph Russo from the Associated Press on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm talking with Dan Wolkin from USA Today. Um, bounced around a little bit. I want to get to, you know, the playoff rankings come out in about a week. Well, in fact, it's a week from today of the first playoff rankings. And we know that that's mostly just a TV show, but it also is the time of the year when you can start seeing clear paths for certain teams. It certainly looks like Alabama and Clemson have a relatively clear path, and Notre Dame is an interesting team right now. I still think there's some real potential for some chaos here with two lost champions and things like that. Where do you see the dicey areas or the potential for some weirdness along the lines of the last half of the season toward the playoff? I got made fun of by a lot of people. I wrote a column just sort of laying out how the SEC could get three in the playoff. I'm here to tell you it's not like a 0% chance that could happen. (laughs) Um, You know, again, I think it's unlikely. But, I mean, just think about what if LSU really does beat Alabama? in two weeks. I mean, mm-hmm. LSU has played great, you know, and their, their defense is salty. It's going to be at home. It's going to be at night. I mean, Alabama, maybe at some point they, they just get in a tough game and don't respond the right way. And, you know, then all of a sudden we're looking at LSU uh, going 11 and one winning the sec West. I mean, Alabama 11 and one, I think you don't, wouldn't you have to say they're getting in? Well, you know, I mean, they did last year, so there's certainly precedent for doing it again. Yeah, and so then maybe they rematch with Georgia. Now, Georgia's got some issues, and I'm not sure. We'll, we'll find out a lot more about Georgia uh, against Florida in uh, th- this weekend. But you know, what if it's an LSU-Georgia rematch in Atlanta? Georgia turns the tables. They win the SEC again the same way they did last year. Well, then what do you do with LSU? I mean, I know they'd have two losses. 
but they'd have two losses to top 10 type teams and they'd have wins over Georgia, Alabama and Miami. And we'll see what happens with Miami, but like that's a pretty good resume given the schedule. So like it, it to me, I think the Pac-12 is out. Uh, I think the Big 12 is not out, but it's not it's 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 certainly in a precarious position. Um you know, the the Big 10 I mean, Michigan seems like they're in control, but what if, you know, what if they, uh, what if they lose to Ohio State and Ohio State kind of gets it together a little bit, but doesn't look great? And what if Notre Dame loses to USC? Like these things are not out of the realm of possibility, and you got to put four in. So I do think there's a potential for a lot of weirdness. Yeah, you know, I was playing it out today, just on the literally on the way to work on the subway because I didn't have a good podcast to listen to, so my mind was wandering. Like, you can come up with a scenario that doesn't take any major double-digit, you know, underdog upsets to have a two-loss champion in the Big Ten and to have a two-loss champion in the Big 12. Like, you don't need to stretch the imagination to go there. I got to tell you, I, you know, Notre Dame has played really well, and it's not a knock on them to say they could lose twice down the stretch here. That schedule is crazy with all the travel that they have to do, and they are good, but certainly not good enough to say, like, oh, like they could have a bad game against Northwestern and lose. They could go, you know, that, that East Coast trip, weird trip to Yankee Stadium against Syracuse and just be flat. So, like, Notre Dame could easily let, not just lose once, but Notre Dame could lose twice. And you're right. I think one of the keys to sort of keeping some semblance of order here is Alabama taking care of business. If Alabama just takes care of business and wipes through the SEC, that sort of eliminates all the, all the volatility out of the SEC. But there are definitely some spots here where, again, you don't have to come up with some kind of massive upset to get to a bunch of two-loss champions. Exactly. And, you know, I think it would also help sort of the order of everything if, you know, Oklahoma with the defense that looked a bit better against TCU last weekend, if they can kind of continue to improve. Uh, And I I think if you look at sort of the Big 12 and their playoff chances, Oklahoma is a much more viable type team than Texas, in my opinion. And I also think if Michigan – kind of runs through the Big Ten uh, the rest of the way and and actually wins in Columbus, uh, I think that would also, you know, make it seem a lot like more of a normal year. But that's, you know, that may be asking a lot. All right, let's wrap up here with a little look ahead towards this weekend. And the big game, you referenced it, is is the cocktail party down in Jacksonville between Florida and Georgia. You know, Florida looks a lot like LSU to me, which is not to say not good, because LSU has been very good, but also a, a little limited. And as bad as Georgia looked against LSU, that still seems like a team that has a lot of ways you, you it can beat you. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you made a pick on this game, but what's your sense on what might happen down in, in the, at the cocktail party? Because it's a huge game. You're right. I mean, talk about the order and the playoff. You know, Georgia wins in this sort of a semblance of order now in that conference. If Florida wins, it gets a little weird. Well, for sure, right. And I think with uh, with Georgia, you know, they're just not as good up front as they were last year on defense. I think that's been pretty consistent throughout the season. Um, offensively. There was a little bit of of drama uh, against LSU. It just it, things didn't click, and and there's been some calls for uh, for Jake Fromm to 
you know, either lose playing time or lose start his his starting job to Justin Fields. I don't know what what's going to happen there, but I am I, I would be shocked if Georgia, having now just had the bye week, didn't come out with a little bit of a different plan or some some types of offensive adjustments to either you know try to get Justin Fields uh, more special packages or more part of the regular offense. Um, because they've got to do something to get that thing jump-started, or else I do think Florida really is a, a threat to beat them the way they're playing right now. Um, you know, aside from the first half against South Carolina, like Georgia just hasn't looked the part. So um, this is going to be a huge test in my eyes to see whether you know they are going to trend at the end of the season here toward uh, a potential playoff spot or whether they're really just kind of more of a three-loss type team. Yeah, it's interesting with Georgia. I do wonder... Uh, if we, if we, if everybody sort of underrated the fact that they had a lot of men on that team last year. I mean, you know, the backs and Roquan obviously were high draft picks, but even guys like Carter and Bellamy, uh, you know, you just had a lot of like grown men seniors. And I think because we see Alabama simply churn the next guy, the next guy, I think we underrate how hard that really is to do at other programs, not to be good, but to be at a really high level. And, you know, Georgia fancies itself as Alabama now, or, you know, some Georgia fans think they are the next incarnation of Alabama. And I think to me, even to a certain degree, they probably dismiss the idea that, oh yeah, we got all these seniors. We'll just replace them with the next wave of five stars. That's not that easy well and i i think it, it may get there in a year or two like they have a group of kids that they've recruited uh the last couple years that were extremely highly regarded highly mm-hmm. rated um and 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 those guys may find roles but it's very early for them they're freshmen they're um you know they're red shirting it's it's a bit of a transition type year for that roster and and kirby inherited a great situation Guys like, uh, yeah, guys like Thompson, guys like uh, Lorenzo Carter, guys like Roquan Smith, like they were ready to go uh, by that second year. They were upperclassmen, and, and they were motivated, and, and they really took ownership of that team. This is just a different group, and they're going to have to, I think, bring along some of those younger kids uh, over the next couple years to, to have that kind of team again. Um, yeah, they're, they're not Alabama. They're not there yet anyway, and – um, they're definitely. This definitely is a much more interesting game than I thought it would be at the beginning of the season. All right, Dan. Listen, I appreciate your time. Hey, are you going to be at a game this weekend? Are you going to that cocktail party, or are you going to be taking them all in? You know, I'm taking them all in. That's really been working well for me lately. Uh, you know, I got a little three television setup down in my basement. Um, I can I can watch a bunch of stuff at once. Uh, at the end of the night, do a little wrap up column that that touches on a bunch of different topics and. Uh, I, I've kind of been enjoying that this year. Yeah, I've been doing a lot the same. I get the phone working and a couple of different screens and taking them all in and, and again, just doing a wrap-up. I'm curious, how about November 3rd? Are you going to, because there's a bunch of good ones there, especially LSU Alabama. Will you make the trip over to Baton Rouge or, again, are you just going to like take it all in? Because I think I'm leaning yeah. towards just taking it all in. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I haven't totally made plans uh, for that weekend yet. I've, I've been I've been working on a couple projects uh, that have uh, taken during during the week anyway. I've kind of taken my focus off of uh, off of my travel schedule, so I, I will be uh, attacking that shortly. But uh, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, Alabama LSU at night. I mean, I think I've probably been to the last five or six uh, Alabama LSU games, and uh, there, you know, there there have been a lot of really good ones, and and 
I'm sure this is going to be this could be the best one since maybe 2011. Dan Wolken from USA Today. Thanks a lot for joining the podcast today. All right, man. Thanks. Hey, Dan, I appreciate your time. All right. See you. And now three and out. First down. Number three, Notre Dame, plays its annual game against Navy this weekend, this time in San Diego, a city with a large military presence. Navy has not been good. The midshipmen are 2-5 and and are now going to scramble just to get to a bowl game. Life in the American Athletic Conference started very well for Navy. They won a division, but the program is now in danger of a third straight season of declining win totals. I don't think it's a reason for Navy to panic, but two points. A, playing the same schedule every year in a pretty good league has to make it more difficult for Navy because its opponents can now better prepare for a style of football few teams play. Not to mention with Notre Dame, Army, and Air Force as permanent rivals, Navy doesn't give itself much flexibility to schedule some lesser opponents like MAC schools or FCS teams the way Army does. B, and I mentioned this with Dan, you wonder if Coach Ken Numatalolo will be more inclined now to try something different if he feels like things have peaked at Navy. Second down, shout out to UAB for two reasons. First, the Blazers are now 6-1, and one, alone in first in Conference USA West. After beating North Texas last week, it's the best start in the history of the program. And that's only two years after the program was basically left for dead. It's a remarkable comeback. Second, even more important, this past weekend, UAB players wore the names of patients from the local Birmingham Children's Hospital on the backs of their jerseys, a tradition that started last season. Good for the Blazers. Third down. My off-the-radar game this week is one that most thought would be getting a lot more attention maybe about a month ago. Miami visits Boston College on Friday night. The Hurricanes are unranked and working their way through a quarterback question. Another loss would make getting back to the ACC championship game an uphill climb. Meanwhile, for BC, which also came into the season with high hopes of a breakout year, this is the start of a rough stretch of games. BC is 5-2, but no lock to even reach bowl eligibility. It's a big game for both teams. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Julie Walker, for making me sound good. You can find us on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Give us a good review and a good rating so we can find more college football fans and more college football fans can find us. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.